open up your Bibles to 3 John. 3 John, that is the Apostle John's third and third letter. 3 John, and we're going to look at uh, verses 5 to 8 this morning. Before we do that, would you join me in a word of prayer as we seek the Lord's blessing on the study of his word. Father, we are reminded from your word of its goodness, of its sweetness. And we, Psalm 119 tells us we rejoice at your word like those who find great treasure Oh God, thank you for your mercy in speaking to us, in giving us your word. We pray, oh Lord, that you would help us this morning not only to understand it, not only to affirm it, but to be glad in it, to savor it, to be satisfied with you who has given it so graciously. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. 3 John verses 5 to 8 speaks to us of an important topic as it touches on missions. You know, last week we, we talked about the mission that Christ has given to us. That is, we are to make much of Christ by making disciples, to go into all the world making disciples, baptizing them, teaching to observe, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. You know what's not in that passage, however, that we looked at last week? What's not in that passage is any sort of command that we ought to send or support missionaries. In fact, you won't find that in that Matthew 28 passage at all. We are simply told, as you are going, go to make disciples. And the question is, why then do churches, why then do we as a church find it not only reasonable, but essential for us to send and support missionaries? Why is that the right thing for us to do? It it seems like it might be such a, a waste of resources. In our day and age, there is, there is a right and a good emphasis to, to buy local. Not only national, but to try to provide local, to keep your money in the community in which you're buying. To buy not only the food that you might find at, at, you know, from a national chain supermarket, but to go to the roadside stands and get the freshest food, the best food. But keeping the money local, it supports the, the local economy. Rather than sending our money over to another country and buying goods that are made somewhere else, we should buy American goods. We have that that desire. Keep our money at home. Let it work for us. Let it provide jobs here. And yet in the church, we're all about sending our support financially and in other ways. We're, We're all about sending people and not just some people, but some of the best people abroad. I mean, 25% of this church's budget goes to missions. That, that is quite an extraordinary amount. And some of our best people have gone out to be missionaries. 
Think of how strong we would be if we kept that money home, if we kept those people back. If they said, hey, we would like to go. We want to go to Scotland and plant a church. We want to go to Puerto Rico and plant a church. We want to go to Chile and to Uruguay and Argentina and Bolivia and beyond. We want to go where Christ is not named and plant churches and spread the gospel. And we said, wait, 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 wait. You guys are good teachers. You're good preachers. You're good disciples. Why would we send you away? We need you here. We have needs here. We have building needs here. Why send that money somewhere else? What, what could we do? How much more could we do if we kept it all here? So why? Why do we send it out? Why is it not only a nice thing, but a necessary thing for us to send and support Christian workers? In John's, third letter, in John's third letter, he addresses this. Certainly we could find answers to this all the way through the New Testament. Primarily the book of Acts highlights this. We could see it elsewhere in the example of Paul and the way he is supported by other churches. But third John just presents such a beautiful picture for us of why we ought to uh, uh, send and support missionaries, how we ought to care for missionaries. What kinds of people we ought to send and support as missionaries? And then what is our reward for that work? And third John touches on all of those things. So walk with me here in verse 5. We see this praise that the Apostle John gives to one man. Now, Third John is written to a, a single man. His name is Gaius. He is most likely, though we have very little information about him, he is most likely the pastor of a local church. And the context of this passage is that the Apostle John is himself, not only an apostle, but he is himself an elder, a pastor at his local church. And from his local church, they have sent a group of traveling preachers and teachers. They have sent a group of missionaries. And that group of missionaries has gone out and they have gone with them. There has been some kind of letter of recommendation with them to the churches to which they go. And we're told that in verse 9, there's a man by the name of Diotrephes who does not uh, accept or receive these missionaries. He refuses them. But this man, Gaius, is praised because he has received them. So we see this in verse 5. Beloved, that is a beautiful word. Throughout John's writings, he refers to brothers and sisters in Christ as beloved. Or you might have in your translation another, another viable translation, dear friend. But I love that word. It is an old word. We don't generally use that word. We, you might have a husband or wife tell that to their spouse, maybe. But even then, it's rare. Use different words today. Different terms of affection Honey boo boo or uh, sweetie pums, I don't know. Uh, but here, a term of affection, beloved. Beloved. Just let your, let your soul soak in that for a moment. Oh, beloved, he's not merely, hey, I love you. 
You are beloved by God. I'm sure that Gaius felt a lot of things, and I'm sure there were times where he didn't feel this. Just as there are times where you and I don't feel this. But if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, and put your hope in Him, you are beloved. God's own beloved. He goes, beloved, here in the New King James, he said, beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do. And that makes it sound like whatever you're doing is, is a faithful thing. Might be a helpful translation found in other translations. ESV puts it this way, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do. Or the NIV says, dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing. That is, there is a, a particular work that he is about, that he is faithful in accomplishing. It is not whatever you do, you're faithful in. It's here is a particular job and that work is faithful. And what does it mean to be faithful is very simple. It's that it is consistent in, in doing this. He is acting consistently with what he claims to believe in Christ. That this work, whatever work he is about, it is consistent with his faith in Jesus. What does the faith in Jesus look like? What does believing in Christ look like? Well, this is a faithful thing you are doing. This is what it looks like. This is an act, an effort, an accomplishment that is consistent with the gospel, with faith in Christ. Supporting and caring well for missionaries is that act. It is a faithful thing, the work of Gaius in supporting and caring for these missionaries that have been sent out is consistent with what it means to be a Christian. It is in line with faith in Christ. For a church, for a group of people to not do this would be unfaithful. That is, it would be a hypocritical faith. I claim to follow Jesus, but I am not living it out. So what are those two works here in this passage? They, they bear this out. What is the, the work that he is and has done? And clearly, if we read through this passage, you can see, look at me back at verse 1. The elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospered. Prospers, for I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. And this love that he is speaking of, that he has worked for the church, it is talking about, in the context of this letter, he is talking about his having received them, his having shown hospitality to them. Now, hospitality isn't just he had them over for a meal. That's not what he's talking about here. Hospitality has more about, uh, has more to do with it, Gaius is paving the way for them to be accepted within, the, within that church. Gaius is putting his own reputation, his own position as pastor, his own, well, his own uh, ministry on the line for these missionaries. He is attaching his name to this group of people. You see, in the ancient world, in John's day, 
people didn't travel as far and as frequently as we might be traveling today. They stayed local. People grew up, they knew everyone else around them in their neighborhoods, in their towns. Churches became familiar one with another. And when people came into a community, they were strangers, foreigners, they were unwelcome. And in fact, it was considered, it was not considered wrong to treat them unjustly. It was not considered poor manners to treat them inhumanely, even violently. It was considered within the realm of custom because those who came into a community who did not belong to that community, who were strangers to that community, they stood outside the law, outside of custom. And so it became incredibly important for when a stranger entered into a town in which that person was no, not known and had no contact within any, for anybody there, it became extremely important for them to have some kind of person that would adopt them, accept them, show them hospitality. And that, that meant not only having a meal with them, but also meant hosting them, housing them, and vouching for them in the community. So that if anyone touched this person who was a stranger, it was considered disrespect, not only on them, but on the person who was showing them hospitality. This person, whoever showed hospitality, was putting themselves on the line for that stranger. That was an incredibly merciful, gracious, but also dangerous thing. For if that person did something wrong and hurt the community... This person standing in the community would be lowered significantly. They would bear the cost. And Gaius is being praised for he has shown hospitality. He has received these missionaries into his home. He vouched for them before the church. He, he in receiving them, he not only shows them love, he shows that they are to be accepted. And, and this, this touches on all of us. But when we gather for church, we, we need to be aware of those within our presence who are guests. That, that is not the particular responsibility of only those who are standing at the door. That is the responsibility of all of us to, to welcome and greet. But this is especially true for those who are missionaries, to those who have given up homes and family and steady jobs and earthly security, to travel where they are not known, to travel where Christ may not be known so that they can serve. And we as a church, we have been given to apartments for missionaries and we show hospitality not only to missionaries from our own church, but missionaries at other churches. And now those missionaries from time to time need some TLC. They need some, some love. They need some help. We have needs in our own church. For There are missionaries who come that need more than we as a church may be able to provide. And so from time to time, those of you provide hospitality, welcoming groups of people into your homes. You do this through cards of support and emails and phone calls and visits. We do this through work projects as we care for our missionaries. There are things that need to be done around the mission, uh, around the world through our missionaries that they need help with. 
One of the ways that we support them is through those works. Showing hospitality, showing love, showing that we stand with them. More than that, we see that there is some generous support. We see this at the end of verse 6. In the New King James Version, it says, If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. It makes it a, a conditional, if you do this. And really, it might be better to read it this way. You will do well to send them on, a journey, on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Here is not only support, but generous support. That idea of send them, sending them on their way, that becomes almost a, a technical word, a technical phrase for financial support for missionaries. We see this in Romans 15, 24. Paul's letter to the Roman church, to the church in Rome. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to, be, as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. There's our, our word, our idea. And be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul is seeking their, not only their help, but their support, their financial support as he goes on to Spain. He writes in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 6, And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. In Titus 3.13, Paul writes to Titus saying, do your, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Here there is supposed to be support, generous support. Notice it's not just good wishes and thoughts and prayers. It is to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Do you remember when Abraham in Genesis is visited by the Lord? Do you remember what he does? How the Lord stops in and Abraham's first response, he, he welcomes him in. And Abraham, we are told, doesn't eat. He waits on him. Here is Abraham, important Abraham, influential Abraham. And he's waiting on him hand and foot. He provides an expensive meal, an elaborate meal. Gives him the best of what he has. This is how we are to care for those who serve the Lord in this way. To send them on their journey. To send them on the way in a manner worthy of God. This is not stingily. But generously. This is a question. What should be our, our financial goal for missionaries? It raises that question, doesn't it? What, is that? what does that look like? There are some philosophies and some churches for their pastors and missionaries. The goal is, we'll keep you poor and humble so that you can learn to rely on God. This is one strategy. There are other churches and other traditions where the aim is they want their pastors and their missionaries, they want their, their ministers to drive the best cars to wear the best clothes, to live in some of the best houses, to have the nicest stuff. And it's not that we seek, ah, oh, well, these are two extremes, and we seek the middle. But rather, everywhere where the Bible talks about supporting its, its, the ministers of the gospel, it talks about them not in terms of poverty and humility, nor in terms of 
lavish lifestyle. Rather, it talks about them uh, to be supported so that, so that they are freed to do the work of the ministry. That is the goal of our support, to free them up so that they are able to do the work of the ministry. And you know what? That's going to look different for the missionaries who go and work in Tokyo, Japan. That is a significantly greater cost than it is for those who may be working and serving in the jungles. But the aim is the same. To free gospel workers to do gospel work. It raises the question, who are the ones we owe this work to? And there are five tests, really, for missionaries. For those whom we want to support as missionaries, I'll walk briefly through each one. There is the family test. We see this in verse 5. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. In the New King James Version, it makes it sound like there are two groups of people here. You've got the brethren and for strangers, as if these are two groups of people. But it's not. It's one group. It's you, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you, even though you do not know them. That is, they are to receive with hospitality, and they are to support generously those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are Christians. This may seem obvious, but it is anything but. In our day, in a a movement, uh, in a desire to see missions go quickly, there has been an increasing uh, movement amongst missionaries and amongst missions and churches to send out people who themselves do not claim to be Christians. Here we are told, beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for those who are brethren, even though they may be strangers to you. Strangers as they are. Those whom we support to carry out the gospel of Christ ought themselves at the very least to be acquainted with Christ. That's, that's, the, that's the low bar. And it's so obvious, it, it shouldn't even need to be said. It's, and yet, it does. That's the first test. They're a part of the family. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. The second test is the mission test. We see this in verse 7. Because they went forth for his namesake. They have gone out for the sake of Christ's name. That is the mission. They didn't go out merely to, to sightsee. They didn't want to, you know, I want to live in another country. I want to sample other cultures and I really want to taste their food there. I really want to, you know, live abroad and get a sense of the world. That's not the goal here. These aren't people who are trying to expand their business from one location to another. These are people who have gone out for the sake of the name, for the sake of the gospel. This speaks to their purpose. They have gone out for the sake of the gospel. They've gone out to declare that there is a God who is holy and just and good in all of his ways. And that each of us will one day give an answer to him for how we have lived. And they are declaring, they are trying to help us see that each one of us fall short of his demands. He is our creator. Our holy God, there is none like him. And yet we fall short in every way. We rebel and sin against him. 
We do not love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We do not love others the way we love ourselves. No, 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 no. Our world emphasizes first and foremost, be good to yourself, be true to yourself. We fall short. And in falling short, we deserve His justice. For we sin not against someone who is merely the same as us on the same level or someone who is of moderate, uh, moderate importance over us. We are sinning against Him as infinitely high and holy. And because we are sinning against Him who is infinitely high and holy and pure and righteous, we deserve a judgment that is infinite. That matches the glory of the one whom we sin against. And this eternal death, this eternal judgment, we will all taste. Unless we turn and trust in Christ. For God has given us his own son. And he has sent him into the world to redeem sinners. Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we must turn from our sin, cling by faith to Christ Jesus, to follow him, to submit to his work, to submit to his person. That is the, that is the, the message of missions. That is the message of Christianity. That is whom we are to support. Those who go out for the sake of, their, of, the sake of Christ's name. It speaks to their purpose. It speaks to their competency. That these are people who are prepared. These are people who are sufficient. Sufficient in their knowledge and understanding of God's word. And of their ability to declare it. Missionaries who are worthy of our support are those who go out for the sake of Christ's name and are those who are competent and prepared to make disciples for Christ. And there's the second test. The family test, the mission test, the third test is the servant test. We see this at the end of verse 7. They went out for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. That is, they, they, they are receiving nothing from those whom they are trying to serve. Why? Why does Paul, though Paul says that he has every right, according to the gospel, according to the word, to receive some profit from those by whom he is ministering to, why? And he, why does he not? He declares it's, it is so that the gospel, his, his declaration of the gospel, is in no way confused with a desire to get wealth, to put himself ahead. It is to make his declaration of the gospel free of charge to those to whom he is declaring it. He is making himself a servant. The scriptures tell us multiple times that a minister of the gospel is to be supported by those who are served by the gospel. But missionaries are those who, those who are worthy of our financial support are those who have sacrificed these ordinary means. And they've done it all for the sake of Christ so that they go out receiving nothing from those to whom they declare Christ so that they might advance the name of Christ. 
We have the family test, the mission test, the servant test. Fourth, the church test. We see them in verse 9. John writes, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive this. And again, verse 12. Well, let's step back up. Verse 9. Well, what happened is these missionaries are sent out is they are taking with them a, a letter of recommendation. One of the ways that John and the early church was able to establish that these ministers who are going out declaring Christ are legitimate missionaries being sent out from the church is that they sent along with those missionaries letters of recommendations so that any churches that they came across in the process of declaring the Christ, those churches would know, okay, these are authorized. These missionaries are legitimate. These missionaries have been sent out. What is happening here is that we do not have missionaries who are lone ranger missionaries. That is, they are not coming up one day and saying, hey, I would like to be a missionary. Therefore, I'm going to go out and teach and preach the gospel. What we see is that the work of a missionary begins by a church sending them out. We see this Paul or John writes this church. He sends a letter with the church. But Diotrephes, he doesn't receive that letter. And in not receiving the the missionaries or the letter of recommendation, he is rejecting John's own authority. And in verse 12, we find that in this letter, a man by the name of Demetrius is given a letter of recommendation. So this letter comes to Gaius, possibly by Demetrius' own hand. And we are told Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. Here in verse 12 is a, a recommendation, a commendation of this missionary Demetrius who is carrying this letter. What we have throughout the New Testament again and again and again is that missionaries do not go out by their own authority. They go out by the authority of a local church. We see this in Acts 13. So put yourselves in the church of Antioch where Paul is serving. The Apostle Paul. He has been chosen by Christ. He has been taught for an extended period of time by the risen Christ. He has been chosen by Christ to be an apostle. He has been given extraordinary gifts. He is a man of extraordinary knowledge. Here is a man of anyone who could simply go out, Hey, church, I just want to let you know the Holy Spirit is working in me and I'm going to go out and begin being a missionary. I'm going to declare the gospel to those uh, who have not heard. And the church could simply comply. This is the Apostle Paul. Who is to disagree with him? But in Acts 13, that's not what we find. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to the Apostle Paul and say, Hey, you need to inform the church that you're leaving. The Holy Spirit goes to the church. And it's the church that sets the Apostle Paul aside through prayer. And it is the church that sends him out. And at the end of his first journey, at the end of Acts chapter 14, when Paul returns to Antioch, do you know what he does? He gives a report to the church that sent him out. The Apostle Paul is a man 
as an apostle who has in many ways authority over churches. And yet he is a man who put himself under the authority of a particular local church. I fairly regularly receive contact from people who claim to be missionaries asking to come and speak here. I had one on Friday afternoon. Almost all the time in my correspondence with them, one of the first questions I ask beyond let me know who you are, basic information, where, what do you believe? I want to know where is your local church in this? Are you sent out by your church? Do you have a letter of recommendation from your own church? Are they sending you out? Or are you just kind of a free agent doing this all on your own? More often than not, it has become common in our day for those who are going to plant churches and preach at churches and pastor churches to have never been a part of a local church before. Brothers and sisters, those whom we support as missionaries, we see throughout the New Testament, are to be sent out by local churches. There is that church test. And finally, the faith test. The faith test. I get this not so much from John, third John, although it is implied here, but from second John. You can turn over just one page to second John, John's second letter in verse seven. John writes this, he's warning another church of receiving a certain kind of missionary. He says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This person is a deceiver and an an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. That final test, this faith test, is questioning, do those whom we support cling to and believe the faith as it is revealed in the Scriptures? In the New King James, that word is translated doctrine. Other translations will have the word teaching. I find it fascinating. It is is in the singular. That is, it is that hold to this doctrine, this teaching, this faith. It is not in the plural. See, there is an idea in our modern world that early on, first and second Century Christianity was comprised not of a single faith, a single teaching, a single set of doctrines that were believed by all true Christians. No, we don't find one single teaching, one single faith. We find many faiths, many, not one Christianity, but many Christianities. That has become a popular line of thinking in our day. But you find no evidence for that, either in the scriptures or in history. What we find is that there was an accepted pattern of faith. This is the teaching. And those who depart from it are recognized by that. They are false teachers. In this church, even within the last 10 years, 
has had to end its relationship with some missionaries due to this reason that they have ceased to uphold the faith. We have these tests the family test, the mission test, the servant test, the faith test, the purpose test. The aim for us is to be faithful in our sending. And for us to be faithful in our sending, those whom we send must themselves be faithful. And as we close, I want us to see that there is a reward for us in this work. There is a reward for us in this work. Yesterday, my two youngest sons, with the help of my wife, uh, they, out in our front yard, by the street, they set up a lemonade stand. They, uh, they, and then I think there's a, a fairly good correlation between the younger someone is and the cuter they are and how much money they make, right? If some of us who are adults would go out and set out a, a, a lemonade stand, I, I'm pretty sure we would not make nearly as much money. Uh, my boys did fairly well. And then afterwards we were talking through and they were discussing how to divide up the money and the youngest one wasn't sure he was going to get as much as the eldest as the one who was working with him and talking through them we talked about how because he shared in the work and he did he will receive equal payment. He is a, a fellow worker in this. And he was excited. He was going to get some of the money that they had gained himself. What we see here in verse 8 tells us that we too receive a reward. John writes, We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. That we may become fellow workers for the truth. Not many of us are able to go. Not many of us are able to, to learn a new language, to pay the cost. Not many of us may have the gift to be able to, to teach. Not many of us may have the stomach to endure foreign foods. Not many of us may be good enough health in which we can to go. But as we support with love, as we support generously, financially, and this church does, we share in that work. We become fellow workers for the truth. And that Friends, that is what this church is all about. Limerick Chapel for the truth. For the scriptures, for the glory of Christ, for the gospel. We become fellow workers in the truth. So that as this morning, as Dale and Avril Fries are teaching and preaching and that's that new church that they've got there in Scotland. We share in that work. 
as the delegates, Jake and Elizabeth, sacrifice and serve in Puerto Rico. Seeing that church grow, you share in that work. As Larry and Linda, Bob and Karen, as Andy and Colette, so many others, do the work of missions in places where you and I could never get to, possibly never endure, never stay. We become fellow workers. And if we are fellow workers, we will have a share in the eternal joy and in the eternal reward in which they themselves will share. Do you want your life to mean something? It does. As we send, as we support. There are places in this world, many places where Christ is not known. And you do not have to cross great boundaries and borders to get there. There are places down in the city of Philadelphia, places up in Northeast, places around our country where churches must be planted, where Christ's name is not glorified. The church buildings may exist. But anything going on inside is dead. There is a need for more missionaries. There is a need for more support. The mission is not over. The work is not done. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have an opportunity to continue to send and support and care well for ministers of the gospel around the world. And in doing so, as they have gone out for the sake of Christ's name, and they will be rewarded for that, we will share in those rewards by the grace of God. We have a job to do as a church. Let us join together. Let us partner together for the truth, for the gospel, for the sake of God's name. That Jesus will be seen to be big in the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, there are so many people groups that do not even have your word in their own language yet. So many cities and towns and villages and regions. There is not a single church where there is not a single messenger of Christ. Oh God, we pray that you will use us Use us to reach those who yet have not heard. I pray, O Lord, that there will be some in our midst today who will go in the future for the sake of Christ's name. Whether that be a short-term mission trip or whether that be for decades and years. 
Father, we pray that you will work in us, that we will be hospitable, that we will be loving, that we will be supportive, and that we as a church will care well for our missionaries. That your name will go forth and be rejoiced in by all peoples. This is our prayer, O God. In Christ's name, amen.